0: to follow along to turn to 2 Samuel. I'm going to read the first three verses, and I've asked Tim Faylor to pray God's help and blessing on the preaching of his truth, his word. 2 Samuel chapter 20. And there happened to be there a base fellow whose name was Sheba the son of Bichari, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his chance, O Israel. So all the men of Israel went up from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichrai. But the men of Judah clave unto their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward, and provided them with sustenance, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Let us pray.
1: Day, this time you brought us together, that we could come together and hear your word read and sing your word and and worship and magnify your name. We thank you for with our whole heart. Allow us now to hear the words of your mouth. Through the pulpit, through the preaching of your servant David, we ask that you guide him with your spirit, that you open our eyes and ears so that we might hear and obey that we not put our trust in our own works and treasures, but rather with humility and meekness and lowliness allow us to be taught um, to trust only in your redemption through Christ and the righteousness that is brought to those of us who are in him. We thank you for that and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. I chose to read the first two verses just to give us and remind us a little bit of the context of the passage that we're looking at. Verse 3, David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward, and provided them with Sustenance, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Many commentators, I was surprised, simply skipped over this verse three or just glanced at it sideways. But one commentator, I appreciated his remark when he said that the inspired writer inspired by God the Holy Spirit has placed this right here interrupted interrupted, many think interrupting the narrative about Sheba and Amasa and so on but this writer suggested and I incline strongly to agree with him that God the Holy Spirit led Whoever the author of this book is, we're pretty confident that it wasn't Samuel because he died sometime before these words were written. It may have been Nathan. It may have been Gad. It doesn't really matter. It was God the Holy Spirit inspiring the writer to put these words down for his people to read and to understand and to know. But the suggestion is that this was placed right here almost as a, what can I say, something of a a wire across the path to force us to stop and look at it, or we might be tripped up. And so we are looking at it, regardless of who the inspired writer was, we wish to look at this third verse. We could suggest there's some reason to do so, that this is a time of rest and relaxation, as they call it today, Um, I think particularly in the military. It's a time of rest and relaxation. David is returned to his house at Jerusalem, we're told. What brought us to this place? What brought David, more importantly, to this place? Well, we've been looking at all the events of chastening. God's bringing his promised chastening upon David in so many different ways. And now David is back at home on the throne. Truly a time of rest and relaxation in some respects, in some sense. At least from physical combat for the moment. He's back in his house. In Jerusalem. What is he to do. With these ten concubines. By it's being placed right here. In breaking up as it it were the narrative. And bringing us to this. Dealing that David has to make. Regarding these ten concubines. We know that. He probably, this was brought to his mind almost immediately that he needed to do something with these concubines. I'll remind you simply that he left them when Absalom revolted and and gathered an army to take the throne away from his father and to take his father's life away from him. David left those ten concubines to care for their house. Now, when we preached on that passage i admitted that i didn't understand why he left those 10 concubines but as in many other things really as in all other things it was according to god's design in absalom uh, instructed uh, guided by ahithophel a counselor who had rebelled against david that he should uh, go in unto those 10 concubines in order to demonstrate that he's the new man on the throne in order to demonstrate to all the people and and to bind them closer to himself he took those women he went in onto them as the word is used and in fact he did it publicly on the rooftop and of course this would make David uh, seemed less than king in the sight of many people and it would lift up and exalt Absalom which was the design of Ahithophel. But now David has been granted victory over Absalom by God and he's returning and he has returned to his house in Jerusalem. Now what do I do with these ten women that have been violated? What do I do with them? Should I take them out and have them stoned? What should I do with them? Just send them off? At any rate, he determined, and it doesn't suggest that he spent a great deal thinking on it. The Lord probably directed him, and David knew God's will to a great extent, and so he immediately has them put in ward providing them sustenance of course meeting all their physical needs but he went not in unto them it's kind of like he divorced them though they weren't actually married but they were concubines rather than wives but in many cases in the orient of those days there wasn't a huge distinction But at any rate, it's as though he divorced them. He put them in ward and they were shut up in ward until the day of their death, living in widowhood, living as if they were widows, as if the king was dead to them because, in fact, he was making himself dead to them. But he was putting away from himself these ten concubines whom the Lord loves we read in the scriptures whom the Lord loves he chastens David is responding I'm convinced to the chastening that he has received from the Lord he's lost three sons he's lost a great deal He has been chastened. He has been humbled. He went out of Jerusalem weeping with his head covered and his feet bare. And he allowed Shimei to wail on him and curse him. He allowed many things. He had been truly humbled, chastened. What is the end of chastening? We are looking at that recently. God promised to chasten David, and he did. And it hasn't stopped yet, but we're not looking at the going on, the continuation of that, but just saying that God has been chastening him and humbling him. That's the purpose. That's God's design in chastening him, to bring him back to himself you'll know, you'll remember. It's been spoken from this pulpit a number of times, but God is not interested, it's not His ultimate purpose to make us happy, but to make us holy. And by God's grace the new hearts that He has given us will only be truly happy when we are truly holy and that's what chastening is for that's probably the major thing that this instrument of chastening is employed by God this was not really rest and relaxation for David but another R&R it was remembrance and repentance I would submit David had well learned. He had well learned that idle hands are the devil's workshop. I suppose it's somewhat paraphrastic of Isaac Watts, but he says, for Satan always finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. You remember how this all began, how David's sin began in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. When we are told that at the time that kings went out to war, David stayed at home, he stayed behind. We're not told that it's all part of a, a plan that he had to seek and to violate Bathsheba. But it's not out of sight completely that that could not have possibly been his design for staying behind. He was a warrior. A warrior king. And he went out with his troops. That was his habit. He stayed behind. When kings went out to battle. That's how it all began. Idle hands. The devil's workshop. He had made his hands idle. Sin led to sin. Led to sin. Led to sin. Adultery leads to murder it all began when David stayed behind and not doing what he was directed to do not doing what he was made king to do but he stayed behind David remembers well that fall into sin with Bathsheba I would submit again I would suggest that he remembered every step he took up that stairway to that rooftop. I would even go so far as to intimate that he probably knew that up on that rooftop he would have a view of Bathsheba bathing. We're not told that. But I believe that we are told in the Psalms and we are told by David's deportment after his chastening that he remembered that fall into sin every step that he took going up those stairs and remembering as well the horrific results of that wickedness I could imagine David of course it would be anachronistic but I could imagine David paraphrasing Paul saying I knew a man once I knew a man once, a man after God's own heart, such a one caught up even to the third hell. I say even to the third hell, I paid threefold, three sons now dead in my chastening. I will not continue that lifestyle. Send those concubines away. Put them in ward. Provide their every physical need. But I don't want to ever see them again. Put my sin away from me. Fool me once. Satan, shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Our Lord told us in Matthew 5.28, Every man that looketh on a woman to lust hath committed adultery already in his heart. Out of sight, out of mind, put no wicked thing before your eyes. David wrote that. I don't know the time or the specific occasion that David wrote that psalm. But he says... In Psalm 101, 3, put no wicked thing before your eyes. Put no base thing before your eyes. I don't want to be reminded of those concubines. I don't want to be reminded of the times I spent with them. I don't even want to be reminded of what my son did to them. Put them away, put them in war. Put no wicked thing before my eyes. You know how the eyes function, do you not? In leading us to sin. I remember a preacher 40 years ago or more just making reference to how the dress of women today. I, don't, I hardly ever go to malls. I don't even remember the last time I've been. But he happened to use malls as a reference. He says you can't even go to a mall. You have to walk around with your head looking down at your feet because of the dress of so many women today. David says, put them away. I don't want to look upon them. Wasn't this this the instrument in the first sin? Was it not the instrument in Eve's fall and Adam's fall? She looked on the fruit on that tree and desired it and succumbed to the tempter. She took it and gave to her husband to eat. That began it all, did it not? And how about Achan and Joshua? In Joshua, we read about Achan. Everyone was wondering, why is it that we didn't succeed in AI? Why didn't we defeat AI? We took that huge city of Jericho and all that, that's just a little one. We just send a few thousand men. We don't need to send everybody. And they were beaten. And I think around 20 Israelites. 20 of Joshua's men were slain. Joshua fell to his knees. Crying unto God. Why? God told him, There's sin in your camp. And through. The Urim and the Thummim. Perhaps they discovered. And it was Achan. Joshua exhorted Achan, tell us what you've done that would bring this on your people. And basically Achan told him about the Babylonian garment, the gold and the silver that he had taken. When they were told to destroy everything, it's devoted to God, destroy it all. He took it and hid it under his tent. But listen to what he told Joshua. I sum it up. He said, I saw... I coveted, I took. Oh, how much evil we embrace through our eyes. This was precisely the pattern of David, was it not? He saw Bathsheba bathing. He coveted Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba. Yes, he says in Psalm 101 and verse 3, I will set no base, no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. I hate the work of them that turn aside. He set something before his eyes and he turned aside. The man after God's own heart turned aside to sin and it all started with his eyes. It shall not cleave to me, he says. One man wrote, I believe it was Shakespeare, Eyes are the windows to your soul. If you set it before your eyes, it may well turn you aside. Be careful, little eyes, what you see.
1: And it may cleave to
0: you. Did it not cleave to David? Is that not the import that we could make of his losing his sons? Did the sin not cleave to him through chastening? And cost him his child with Bathsheba and cost him Amnon. And cost him Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. These things are all whirling around in David's thoughts and remembrances, his mind, and probably tearing his heart up. It was cleaving to him. I hate the work of them that turn aside. <clears throat> we read the same word used by his son Solomon in Proverbs 7. 24 through 27, where we read now, Therefore my sons hearken unto me, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thy heart turn aside to her ways. That's the harlot being spoken of in Proverbs 7. Turn aside not to her ways. Go not astray in her path. For she has cast down many wounded. Yea, all her slain are a mighty host. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. David was most certainly aware of these truths. Although they were written by his son later. But surely he knew the principles involved here and yet he looked. Oh how helpless we are without God's grace holding us back. We cry out often do we not. The Lord's Prayer, as it's called by many. Lead me not into temptation. Let me not see it. Let me not follow it. Lead me not, O God. For I'm weak and I'm a sinner still. Lead me not. There's a poem and other stories about a moth and a flame. Moth and the candle. And the poet speaks of how that moth is just flickering and, and kind of dancing in the air around that flame. He's just in, in, entranced by it. And it gets hot and it, and it singes slightly. And he backs off, but then he can't seem to give it up. Finally, he gets too close and it consumes him. The flame consumes him. That's a very apt picture of what sin does. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This turn aside, David crying, let not thy heart turn aside, or Solomon rather, the same words David uses, I hate the work of them that turn aside. Oh, keep me on the straight path. The paths of righteousness upon which thou I set my feet. When thou didst save me, when thou didst regenerate my heart. Keep my feet on those paths that I not turn aside. This turn aside, one writer suggests that as it's used in Proverbs, it's, it's, it's that of an unruly horse that chomps on the bit through his impatience. And when applied to a bad man, it speaks of one impatient of all restraint, of unbridled passions, and that is headstrong and ungovernable in the gratification of them, trampling on all the obligations of religion and virtue. Is that not what John Bunyan talked about when he told us about the man in the iron cage in the interpreter's house? Why are you in there? Why can't you get out? I threw the reins off my neck, and now it's too late, the man in the iron cage said. Does this not describe David's behavior? But by God's remarkable grace, David wasn't thrown in an iron cage. There may have been times when he felt like he was in it, but he wasn't because God left the door open for him because he loved him with an everlasting love and he caused David to love him back and he chastened him, he didn't destroy him he chastened him and brought him to himself I mean brought David to a right mind to go along with that right heart that God had given him and it doesn't appear that David communicated what he had learned to his son Solomon. Look where we find this king Solomon, this son of David in 1 Kings chapter 11. 700 and some concubines. Surely he was aware of his father's fall. Surely he understood what his father's life was like. Wow, that was terrible. He had 10 concubines and this, this guy takes 700. 700. Perhaps David didn't teach him very well. I don't know how many years they had together. He failed to teach Amnon and Absalom. And Adonijah, he failed to teach them. And they all revolted from the truth. Oh, as fathers, we need to teach our children. We need to teach our sons. And do everything we can not to teach them by bad examples. It would appear that David's bad example taught Solomon more than his words. The effectively divorced concubines were left to widowhood. David must have wept over his daughter, Tamar. You remember that account, how Amnon lusted after her. It says he loved her, but he lusted after her. And he found a way to have her, and he took her. He violated his half-sister, Tamar. But we're told in 2 Samuel 13, Let me read it to you and see. Amnon basically threw her out. She was begging. I don't know if if it would have been lawful for them to be married. But she's begging him to go ask her hand of of David. He He wouldn't keep me back from you. But Amnon hated her after he had what he wanted. And he threw her out of the house and had a servant bar the door behind her. And we're told that Tamar in 19 of chapter 13, Tamar put ashes on her head and she rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her. That was a sign of her virginity. She tore it off of her. And she laid her hand on her head and went her way crying aloud as she went. Puts one in mind of the lepers crying, crying out, leprosy, leprosy. She's crying out, no more a virgin, no more a virgin. And she had virtually no chance of ever being married after that. She was consigned. We're not specifically told, but it appears strongly that she was consigned because of that wickedness of Amnon. To widowhood effectively she became a widow most happily most graciously God is conspicuously concerned about sojourners the fatherless and widows we read over and again as a group Those three, as a group, sojourners, fatherless, and widows, they are mentioned numerous times as such a group. In Deuteronomy, more than a dozen times as a group, God is concerned about them. It's expressed and explicit. God cares about widows. So God must have had a care, very likely. Again, we're not told. But he must have had a care for those poor violated concubines that David put in ward and they lived unto their death in widowhood and he must have had concern for Tamar she hadn't done anything to bring that upon herself but God is concerned about widows orphans and strangers we read about those that Paul listed in 1 Corinthians 6 just about Every sin that, that man can commit, including widows, which isn't a sin, but every condition is listed there. And can we not add widows to those of whom Paul says, but such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are cleansed. We ought to think of those widows, perhaps, those sojourners, those fatherless orphans and widows but what about ourselves unless, unless, unless you were converted when you were three years old or two years old I would suggest that there were times when you realized that you were a wanderer a sojourner, a wanderer in this world that you had no true father that really loved you with an everlasting love that you were a widow, that you had no husband such as Jesus Christ. Were we not at one time, did it, was it not discovered unto us by God the Holy Spirit working upon our mind and heart that we were widows, that we were orphans, that we were strangers? Isn't that what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 2? Wherefore remember that once ye, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that ye were at that time separate from Christ, alienated, aliens. There was a time when we were aliens. From the commonwealth of Israel, we were aliens from God. We were aliens from His covenant. Strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, the merciful, gracious God that, that we've been able to sing about this morning, bringing mercy and judgment together, righteousness and peace, kissing together in the Lord Jesus Christ, the summer said. And we read in Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth a new singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wives, saith Jehovah. We were desolate at one time, like a widow, like a wanderer, like a stranger. We were desolate. But God. Fear not. God goes on speaking through Isaiah. For thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and the reproach of thy widowhood. Shalt thou remember no more. For thy maker is thy husband. Jehovah of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is thy Redeemer. Do you remember? Do you remember the time when God caused those words to echo from your new heart into your mind and fill you with joy and rejoicing that Christ is your husband, that God is your Father through the spirit of adoption? David sang in Psalm 51 that Famously, Repentant Psalm 51. In a couple of those verses, he said things such as this. My sin is ever before me. This causes me to know my transgressions. Hide thy face from my sins. Hide thy face from my sins. We We can imagine him saying, and I will hide my face from my sins. Put them away from me. Lock them up in widowhood, as it were. Send them away. There is no evidence of David's having concubines after his confession of his sin. In 2 Samuel 12, after Nathan had brought him through that parable about that ewe lamb. And David said, I have sinned against Jehovah. We don't have any evidence, nothing in the scriptures that he ever had concubines again, that he ever fell into that sin again. The chastening clearly had the sanctifying effect that God designed for David and that God designs for all of his people to sanctify us. Not that we necessarily be happy, but that we be holy. And the many tears that he surely shed over those who suffered alongside his chastening were well-deserved tears. He merited every one of them. God brought him to tears, but they were the tears of repentance, of godly repentance brought about by the chastening hand of his father. He was no bastard. He was a son and the man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give thanks unto Thee for Thy mercy and grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee that ever it pleased Thee. Even from before the foundation of the world, He placed us in Christ. And O oh Lord of God, how often we remember our walk before our conversion, and even our walk many times after. We thank Thee that Thou art merciful and gracious, and Thou hast chastened us and brought us back again and again. We thank Thee, O Lord our God, that through Thy regenerating grace, we are not bastards, but sons and daughters. We thank Thee through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. taken from that chapter of Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my loving kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, saith Jehovah, that hath mercy on thee. Amen.